Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Justification by faith illustrated is what I've titled the message here this morning. Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. And uh, why don't we look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly uh, this all-important section of Scripture. Of course, it's all-important. But, uh, Lord, we commit our study to you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, the, uh, you know, we're, we're functioning. I appreciate the guys getting us up to where we have slides here this morning. But they're, they're only behind me today. So sometimes I look back there to see what's happening. So I'll be looking back this way a little bit more this morning because uh, it's only back here this morning. But anyway, uh, the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God, uh, the gospel of God. And we're in that section, justification by grace through faith in chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21. Paul starts his presentation of the gospel here in Romans uh, on how we are made right with God. Uh, with the issue of sin. He starts with the issue of sin as far as uh, um, the major section after the introduction, the first uh, major section relates with sin. This is our universal problem and Paul's conclusion is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The answer to our sin problem is Jesus. Paul emphasizes that God in His grace through Christ has provided redemption the price paid, and propitiation, satisfying God's wrath by the blood of Jesus at the cross. That is the divine side of the equation, God's provision for our sin problem. Jesus is the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, God's provision, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Religion says, look what I've done for Jesus. Christianity says, look what Jesus did for me. There's the difference. It's all about not my works, but Jesus' work, his finished work on the cross. On the human side, we must appropriate the truth of Christ by faith. We are justified, that is, declared righteous by faith. Now, Paul belabors the point in Romans 3, 22 through 31, that we are justified by faith alone and not by our works or law-keeping. So note, uh, just to recap, Romans 3, 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. 3, 22, on all who believe. 3, 25, by His blood through faith. 3, 26, justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 3, 27, by the law of faith. 3.28, a man is justified by faith. 3.30, justify the circumcised by faith. 3.30, uncircumcised through faith. Boy, you see the common thread here all the way through. Now, Romans 3.21 through 28 is among the strongest passages in the entire Bible emphasizing that justification is by faith alone. Paul says in 3.21, the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed. And then in 3.28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Justification is not based on our works, but rather on faith alone. Romans 3.21-28 is the great text on justification by faith alone. But Romans 4 then follows up by giving the great illustration of justification by faith alone as seen in the person of Abraham. John Phillips writes, Romans 4 is the great Bible chapter on salvation by faith alone. Many claim to believe in salvation by faith, but not in salvation by faith alone. There's the dividing line. The word alone is the watershed which divides the Catholic from the Protestant. And it was the watchword of the Reformation. By the way, people don't talk about this today. We don't talk about history. We don't talk about even what... It's just all this muddle out here. We all have faith. 
Well, there needs to be some clarification here. The Romanist, if he is consistent with the teaching of the church, believes in salvation by faith, but not by faith alone. He believes in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the value of the blood alone. He accepts the fact that Christ is mediator between God and man, but not that Christ is mediator alone. He acknowledges the authority of the scriptures, but not their authority alone. In Romans, Paul demonstrates that salvation is by faith alone, apart from any work or merit of man. That's John Phillips. Great statement. There is uh, what we call the solas that came out of the Reformation. Uh, Sola is a Latin word that means alone. And the Reformers held to what we call the five solas. And I've talked about this uh, a few times in our study here. Uh, but one of them I want to zero in on this morning is solified uh, um, Latin, faith alone. This is the great dividing point, as I've already made clear. So, uh, we're talking about the five solas here of the Reformation. Salvation or justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. What a great, great statement. Uh, these, this is the heart of the faith. It's not enough to say we're saved by faith. The truth is we're saved by faith alone. And as Paul shows, a true saving faith holds to justification by faith alone. This is the nature of saving faith. This is a fundamental truth that cannot be compromised and is compromised all over the place. But it must not be if you're going to be faithful to the Scripture. Now, Paul has just hammered the truth of justification by faith alone in Romans 3. And now he is fully expecting, as it were, the Jewish objector to challenge this with the example of Abraham. And that is where the discussion now goes. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Now, Abraham was recognized by all the Jews as the father of the Jewish nation. I mean, God started a nation-building project with Abraham, as it were. And then he channeled it through Isaac and then Jacob and then the 12 tribes. The Jews saw Abraham as the great prototype of how a person is saved. And in this they were right. As indeed in all the Bible, the great example, the great foundational example of saving faith is found in Abraham. That's true. The problem is the Jews did not see it that way. You see, they believed that Abraham was justified by works and not by faith. They pointed to passages such as Genesis 22. Genesis 22, 15 through 17. And this is the context where Abraham has offered up Isaac. Of course, God intervened there. But he had tremendous obedience where he offered up Isaac. In, in relationship to the command of God to do so. And uh, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." So they look at the text like this. See, it was because of Abraham's obedience that God blessed him the way he did. What the Jews failed to realize is that Abraham's life of obedience followed, followed his initial justification by faith alone. They even quoted Genesis 15, 6, which we will get to in verse 3, in such a way as to say this spoke of Abraham's faithfulness his life of fidelity, saying his life of obedience is what was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. That's how they interpreted that. So they believed that Abraham actually performed the whole law even before it was written. 
Therefore, they concluded that Abraham was indeed justified by his works. And therefore, he should be emulated. Well, here is Paul's response. He asked what Abraham found according to the flesh. That is, what did Abraham discover in terms of his own physical doing according to his own works? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, works and boasting go together. Works speak of an accomplishment, what the person has done to achieve an objective. Now, Paul has already made the point in 327 that boasting is excluded in the principle of faith. And now he is about to prove that Abraham was not justified by works and therefore has no basis for boasting and bragging on what he did to make himself right with God. He is showing that Abraham was not a self-made man. And in truth, all God's people are God-made people. We read here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship. And Abraham is a great example of this reality. Verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? There's the bottom line, right? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul has made his case for justification by faith alone and now appeals to Scripture for his crowning argument. What saith the Scripture? This is the great issue. The Scripture itself speaks with final authority. When the Bible speaks, that ends the argument. Certainly should. Paul has affirmed that the method of being right with God that he is espousing is witnessed by the law and the prophets, 321. And so he now presents a precedent and an example from both. Abraham from the law, Genesis, the law, the first five books technically, uh, from the law, and then also David from the prophets. And what does the scripture say regarding how Abraham was justified? Well, Paul appeals to Genesis 15, 6, which he quotes here to make his point. And notice what uh, Genesis 15, 6 says. And he, that's, that's uh, Abraham, believed in the Lord. And he, God, accounted it, his faith, to him for righteousness. Now, in Genesis 15, Abraham was now an old man. He still had no children. He protested to God that as it currently stood, a slave born in his house named Eliezer of Damascus was to be his heir. Well, God told him that indeed one would come from his own body who would be his rightful heir. And then God told Abraham to look into the heavens and count the stars if he was able to number them. And then he promised him that his descendants through the promised heir would eventually be as innumerable as the stars. And then we have the statement of Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is key. What did Abraham do? Well, he simply believed the promise of God. That's all. That's it. That's it. He believed in the Lord in the sense he believed God would bring to pass what he had said he would do. He believed God could do it and that he would do it. Abraham simply accepted what God said was true and relied on him to fulfill it. That's it. All he did was believe. You can't find anything more in that verse than believe. That's all he did. The concept in view in Abraham believing God here in Genesis 15, 6 is that of trust. Trust. He trusted God to bring to pass what he had promised. Trust is the idea of reliance or dependence upon. Trust is confidence in God's word. 
Now, people often say we need to trust in the Lord for salvation. And that is certainly true as illustrated in Abraham. But in truth, the Bible mostly uses the word faith or believe. However, the concept of trust is clearly seen here in Genesis 15, 6. This is the the basic idea. The word uh, for believed here in Genesis 15, 6 is the Hebrew word aman, A-M-A-N, from which we get our word translated amen. Uh, It denotes trust, a strong confirmation or personal certainty of what it affirms. It expresses complete reliance or dependence upon. God promised Abraham an innumerable amount of descendants, and Abraham amended. it. Amen means so be it. It's a heartfelt, strong affirmation of what has been said. To believe God is to amen what he says. God says, Jesus died for my sins. Amen. I believe it. Says he was buried and rose again the third day. Amen. I believe it. Abraham's belief was not mere mental assent, however, but an active trust. The nature of faith is active, as shown in James 2.23, where we see that the reality of Abram's faith is that it worked. As the Reformers often said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. It's a living faith that works its way out in our life. Now, he was not, not justified by faith plus works, but by faith alone. However, this saving faith was not dormant. It demonstrated itself in action. Now, note a key point is that Abraham did not simply believe in the promises of God, but rather believed in the God of promise. Note it carefully. Genesis 15, 6 literally says, he believed in the Lord. His belief was in the Lord. That is, he believed in the character and the power of God to bring to pass what he had promised. You cannot separate faith in the word of God from faith in God himself. What you think of the person, you think of their word. Now, faith all the way through Romans 3 and 4 is contrasted with works. Faith involves human response, but it is not a work. Abraham did respond. He did believe. Abraham did the only thing a person can do without doing anything. He believed God. That's a quote from John Phillips. I I like it. I like it so much I'm going to say it again. Abraham did the only thing a person can do without doing anything. He believed God. Remember, believing is not a work as outlined by Paul. Now, I talk a lot about the right kind of faith. And we should note the layered nuances related to saving faith as developed by Paul in Romans 1 through 4. Note some of these nuances that are brought out here. He emphasized right from the get-go, his apostolic calling is in relationship to the obedience of faith. And then in 2.4, it involves repentance, literally a change of mind. 2.29, it is a matter of the heart. And now in 4.3, it's a matter of trust. And a New Testament saving faith always has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ. So he put all that together as a developed package. Abraham acquired righteousness, a right standing before God. How did he get it? Well, he believed God. He acquired it just by faith, by faith alone. What Abraham did is believe God, and then what God did is account it, that is his faith, to him for righteousness. Now, the word translated accounted is the Greek word logizomai. It's an accounting or bookkeeping term, meaning to enter something into a ledger. It means to put to one's account. 
This is a key word throughout Romans 4 being used a a total of 11 times. However, it's uh, variously translated as accounted, Old King James, reckoned, accounted, imputes, impute. Uh, This word is used five times in Romans 4, 1 through 8. So it's a very important word. What we have here is imputed righteousness. God put righteousness to the account of Abraham on the basis of his belief alone. Now, it's as if we all have an account before God. Our account before God shows guilty. We are all guilty. We have all sinned. But then when we put our faith in Christ, God puts to our account righteousness. We are then accounted as righteous. This is imputed righteousness. It's put to our account. And it's put to our account simply on the basis of faith alone, just like Abraham. That's what happened to Abraham, and the same truth applies to every true believer. We have imputed righteousness on the basis of faith. And this is very consistent with what Paul says everywhere else in the New Testament. Philippians 3, 9. Be found in him not having mine own righteousness. I don't have any right, right things to present to God. Everything's tainted by sin. Not having mine own righteousness, Paul says. Which is from the law, trying to do everything God commands. But that which is true, What? Faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, he emphasizes it twice. Note that what was credited to Abraham's account was righteousness, meaning a right status or relationship with God. God did not account to him regeneration. He did not account to him faith. Rather, God accounted him righteousness on the basis of faith. Now, that reality is very important to note. Uh, So let's summarize here a little bit. Uh, Justify means to declare righteous. To account or impute to put to one's account. We are justified by faith and are accounted righteous by faith. William MacDonald says, Abraham was justified by faith. It was just as simple as that. Works had nothing to do with it. They aren't even mentioned. The nature of Abraham's faith was essentially the same as that of a New Testament believer. Although, indeed, Revelation was progressive. You see, Abraham looked forward to that which God had promised to do. Whereas the Christian now looks back to what God has accomplished in Christ. But the nature of saving faith remains the same, as Paul plainly states here at the end of Romans 4, 23 through 25. But Paul wanting to drive the point home in a most clear and dogmatic fashion does so in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, not to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Romans 4, 4 and 5 are two verses that every believer should commit to memory. This is perhaps the strongest text in the whole Bible on the truth of justification by grace through faith alone. Paul here in verse 4 uses an illustration from the workplace. For the person who is working, the wages they get paid are not counted as grace or a gift, right? You don't go into your boss and say, may I have the gift uh, at the end of the work week? You know, I I know I I haven't earned it. I I don't deserve it. But would you please give it to me as a gift? You, You don't do that. You have earned it. You have worked for it. They are not counted as a gift, but rather as a debt that is owed the person. The boss is obligated to pay the person as a matter of debt because they earned it. The person earned their paycheck. It's not a gift. The point is what is earned is not of grace. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. 
there are hypothetically two ways, hypothetically two ways, in which, you, in which money can be put to your account. You can earn the money and put it into your account yourself, or someone can gift you and just put it into your account for you. Paul is arguing that when it comes to righteousness, a right standing before God, we have been gifted by God. God in grace has put to our account righteousness on the basis of faith alone. Verse 5, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Alva McLean says, This verse is without a doubt the greatest presentation of free grace and righteousness by faith in all the Word of God. It is right up there. But as a contrast word, in contrast to the person working and receiving on that basis, is the person, are you ready for this? Drum roll. Jeremy, would you please come forward and do the drum? Uh, is, is the person... In contrast to the person working is is the person who does not work. Stop right there. Stop right there. No, this person does not work. The issue is justification and being accounted righteous. On what basis? Not on the basis of works. Apart from works, this person is not working to be righteous. Instead of working for a righteous standing... This person simply believes on him who justifies the ungodly. It is this person whose faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, this is essential truth. It goes to the heart of what constitutes the right kind of faith. A saving faith is not depending on works, my works, to be right with God. Instead of trying to work their way to God, this person simply believes on the Lord. Again, works are shown to be mutually exclusive of believing. To truly believe on the Lord means that you are not trusting your works to make you right with God. To truly believe in Jesus as Savior means I'm not trusting in myself or my own works at all. It's not like we're joint Savior. Jesus kind of does some of the work and I do. No, it's all Jesus. We are now as true believers trusting in Jesus alone to save us. He alone is Savior. And we trust in Him alone to save us. He is our all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. We make no contribution to our salvation at all. All we do is believe. Now, understanding what the text is, understand what the text is saying here. The person who says, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in some form of works, such as sacraments, baptism, being a good person, to get me to heaven, is not saved. They're not saved. It's only the person who does not work, but rather believes on the Lord. It's only this person whose faith is accounted for righteousness. In order to be saved, we have to let go of everything else. Everything we do. We have to stop trusting in any kind of works and believe on the Lord alone and His finished work on the cross. This is what Paul says in his testimony. What things were gained to me. You know, all his credentials on on this side of the ledger as far as his efforts. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as as rubbish, literally as dung. I count them as garbage. Why? Why? that I may gain Christ. If you're going to gain Christ, you've got to let go of everything else. Say, I'm not putting any stock in any of that. None of it. Be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
Kenneth Wiest writes, It is like the proffered hand of a drowning man that makes it possible for the lifeguard to save him. There is nothing meritorious in the act of a drowning man stretching out his hand in order to be saved. It is the efficient medium through which he is saved. Thus, the act of faith on the sinner's part is not meritorious, but only an efficient medium through which God is able to save him. Now, I want to drive the point home. Paul wants to drive the point home a little deeper. Not only are we not saved by our works, but grace gets much more radical than this. Did you see it? It says, God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> kind of shocking. God justifies the ungodly who believe on him. The faith of the ungodly is accounted for righteousness. The expositor says, how far grace goes beyond justice is seen in the statement that God justifies the wicked or the ungodly. Not only does God justify men apart from works, he does so contrary to what they deserve. This reality of God justifying the ungodly would have been totally shocking to Jewish sensibilities. Exodus 34, 7, God said he would by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 23, 7, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. God speaking. So how can it be that God can justify the ungodly on the basis of faith? Well, the answer is found in the difference between the law and grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What the law technically, technically forbade, grace makes possible. God in grace through Jesus Christ has made it possible. This grace was foreshadowed even in the law, but it was brought into full light through the gospel. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, God bestows his righteousness upon the one who trusts him. The Old Testament asserts that God does this. The New Testament shows more clearly how he can. This justifying of the wicked is so radical that it runs contrary to all natural thinking. The faith of the ungodly is accounted for righteousness. Now we can understand if God might take into account the person, you know, that, that, that person's making their best effort, who's trying hard to please God, and therefore God says, well, since you're, trying, since you're putting in a good faith effort here, pun intended, I will give it to you. But no, that's not what it says. It says the one who believes on him who justifies the ungodly this person's faith is accounted for righteousness. He's not working. He's not in a self-improvement program. God, I'm trying to work my way up here and you'll take that in. No, 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 no. Let this soak in for a moment. God justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith alone. In a state of being ungodly, which is a very strong term indicating not being right with God, in that condition, when they put their faith in the Lord, he instantly accounts their faith for righteousness. Note this emphasis in Romans. Justifies the ungodly. It's our verse. Justified by his blood, 5.9. Justified by faith, Romans 5.1. God justifies the ungodly who put their faith in him on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. Kent Hughes says, the truth is we're all ungodly wicked. None of us are good enough. Salvation by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone or it simply will not be. Charles Spurgeon, you thought, did you not, that salvation was for the good, that God's grace was for the pure and holy, who are free from sin. It has fallen into your mind 
that if you are excellent, then God would reward you. And you have thought because you are not worthy, therefore, uh, you could have no way of enjoying his favor. You must be somewhat surprised to read a text like this. Him that justifieth the ungodly. I do not wonder that you are surprised, for with all my familiarity with the great grace of God, I never cease to wonder at it. God invites sinners to come at once for salvation, just as they are. Come in your disorder. Come with your confusion. Come with your despair. Come filthy, naked, and dirty. Come with all your sin. Come to Jesus, crucified for sinners. If God justifies the ungodly, and you are ungodly, there is hope for you. The best news in the world is God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work for salvation, but rather believes in Jesus Christ. I mean, what did the thief on the cross have to offer Jesus? I've been a pretty good person, Jesus, last, last, in the last two hours anyway. <laughs> Nothing! Just look to Jesus for salvation. And Jesus said, you're forgiven in effect. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Romans 4, 5 has a very interesting place in the whole debate over justification by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church, while emphasizing faith, strongly denounces the idea of justification by faith alone. In fact, they have anathematized this view. This is a direct quote from uh, the Council of Trent. If anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified, and that by his faith alone, uh, absolution and justification are affected, let him be anathema. You see, the whole Roman system is built upon the idea in a piecemeal idea of from grace, uh, getting grace through the church, little by little, through the sacraments, you're helping yourself onto God. In effect, little by little, you're working your way there. It's all kind of counting towards, a, hopefully, a, a goal of being saved, ending up with the purging process in purgatory. It really is a works righteousness system that defies justification by faith alone. James McCarthy is a Roman Catholic by background. After his conversion, he served as a missionary to Ireland for years, and then he founded the mission Good News for Catholics. He loves Roman Catholics, as we do. And he writes this interesting statement here from a guy with his background, very knowledgeable. After studying Catholic theology, I found that the Roman church has the flexibility to take almost any verse of Scripture and find some way of explaining it into their system. And these guys are brilliant scholars. I have studied them a little bit. It's, it's scary how brilliant they are. He says it's almost uncanny, but this one verse, Romans 4, 5, they can't do it to. This is the antithesis of Roman Catholicism. I say that's the antithesis of Roman Catholicism because the concept that God justifies the ungodly is so foreign to Roman Catholic thinking. You know, you're, you're getting more grace. You're working your way along through the sacraments, last rites, purgatory. And frankly, it's foreign to all natural thinking. The true gospel is a gospel of grace where God justifies the ungodly solely on the basis of faith. Most people think that God is grading on a curve and that they're a pretty good person and they have some hopes, you know, maybe on the scales, you know, my bad, my good, hopefully my good, it's good I'm a pretty good person. I, you know, they rationalize. They think that their goodness counts for something. In truth, the Bible says that all our righteousnesses, all the right things we do are as filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are saved solely on the basis of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. William MacDonald will summarize then, justification is for the ungodly. Not for good people. It's a matter of grace, not of debt. And it is received by faith, not by works. 
Paul now moves to his next Old Testament example to make his point, namely David. Verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, when Paul says just as, he is saying that David, in effect, illustrates the same point he has just illustrated in Abraham. Namely, that righteousness is imputed apart from works. Now, a form of the word blessed is found in all three of these verses related to the example of David. David describes as blessed the one who is in right relationship with God. Now, it's often conveyed as being happy. Blessed is the idea of happy. But that's really a little weak. It is a joyful awareness of the grace of God. It has been described as, quote, a condition in which you are deeply secure and content and happy in God. Now, Paul, in verses 7 and 8, goes on to quote David from Psalm 32, 1 and 2, which serves to illustrate the truth that God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, I know we're getting late into the message here. At least you hope so, right? And uh, your thinking at this point is about exhausted, right? But I really need you to think with me carefully now. Psalm 32 is David's psalm of confession after his horrendous, sinful downfall with Bathsheba, as recorded in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Actually, David wrote two great confession psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Now, David, in this context, was guilty of the sins of covetousness, adultery, and murder. You know, you can't get a whole lot more guilty than this. Guilty. Guilty, guilty. David lived under the Mosaic law. Abraham lived before it. David lived under the law. Now, under the law, you see, there was, there was provision made for sin committed unintentionally. Leviticus 4, 2 and 3. However, the penalty for intentional sin was the death penalty. Numbers 15, 30 and 31. The sin of a high hand or willful defiance, was not provided for in the maintenance offerings. If we might call them that, the maintenance offerings. Such a sin expressly called for the death penalty. Now, this is precisely why David, when he sinned deliberately, very deliberately with Bathsheba, threw himself on the mercy of God. David understood that for defiant sin, God demanded repentance. And then on the basis of mercy, he may forgive. We note, however, that the Day of Atonement did cover all sin, all the sins of the people committed during the previous year. So the idea was that if a believer in the Old Testament committed willful sin, there was no provided sacrifice. Such a one would not be right with God until the Day of Atonement. The death penalty constantly hung over his or her head. The only thing to do was to throw yourself on the mercy of God. It definitely spoke to the seriousness, the very seriousness of willful, defiant sin. That's why David says what he says in Psalm 51, 16 and 17. He says to God, you do not desire sacrifice. What, the whole sacrificial system? And he's saying, you don't desire sacrifice? There's no provision for intentional sin. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. If it was prescribed, I'd do it. You do not delight in burnt offering. What? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. But there's another thing to consider. David had previously been described as a man after God's own heart. He definitely was a man of faith, as seen in his taking on the giant Goliath, as a young man. He was a saved man of faith when he fell into sin. <gasps> I thought after we're saved, we don't sin. You thought wrong. Note that in Psalm 51, 12, David did not say, restore to me your salvation. No, that's not what he said. He rather said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, David did not lose his salvation, but he did lose his joy for believers, there are two aspects of forgiveness. There is the forgiveness in salvation 
when we are justified by faith. That relates to our position as, as, as being a child of God. And that never changes. We call this penal forgiveness. The penalty of sin is forever taken care of. Never have to worry about it again, ever. I mean, when, when, when God deals with us as far as sin in our lives, it's as a matter of discipline, not as a matter of penal judgment. Jesus said, the moment we believe, we pass from death to life, and we shall not come into judgment for sin. But then as believers, in our walk, we sometimes get our feet dirty. We mess up. As James said, we all stumble in many ways. All of us. In such a case, we need to get right in our walk. We are still a child of God, but our sin has disrupted our fellowship walk with God. In this case, we need to ask God for forgiveness. And that's where 1 John 1.9 comes in. This is for believers. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking about the maintenance related to our walk. This is what we call parental forgiveness. Because we are coming to God as one who is already his child and getting right in our walk. It's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, he's already our Father. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus had this aspect of forgiveness in view when he said to Peter, He who is bathed, that is, has the the bath of salvation, needs only to wash his feet. The the cleansing related to our walk. However, when a believer sins, both aspects come into view in this sense. Yes, we come to God for cleansing related to our fellowship walk. But at the same time, we always go back to the fundamental rock truth that our faith relationship with God is based on a right standing imputed to us apart from works. From where we are at on this side of the cross, it means we always come back to the truth of the cross, which is the core basis of our relationship with God. Even in confessing our sins as a matter of maintenance, we remember that our relationship with God is a matter of grace and not of works. We come back to the center core truth of the cross. David's case, according to the law, was hopeless. He had very intentionally broken God's law, yet he was saved, but he should die. So David threw himself on the mercy of God, steeped in the reality of having imputed righteousness apart from works. On that basis, he confessed his sin as a matter of maintenance and was restored. Yes, he experienced ongoing discipline, but at the same time, his life was spared. Expositor says, since David was actually already a justified man, known as a man after God's own heart, in his case we learn the truth that sin in the life of a believer does not cancel out our justification. That's the point here. This is the key point from the example of David. Relationship with God is not based on works. God justifies the ungodly who turn to him in faith. And once we are saved... We remain saved apart from works, even if we should fall terribly. David could not rectify his situation by means of works. But he could fall back on the truth that his position of imputed righteousness on the basis of faith did not change in spite of his failure. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When we fall... We are reminded that God's parental forgiveness is based on a standing position of imputed righteousness apart from any works, as noted in verse 6. We are again and again brought back to the reality that we are what we are by grace, apart from works. The forgiveness related to our walk is based on the foundational reality of imputed righteousness that is established in saving faith. You see, back in the Old Testament, sins were covered as represented in the blood that was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant on the annual day of atonement. As noted in Romans 3.25, Old Testament saints were saved on credit as they awaited the Messiah 
who would be the final and complete payment for sin. In the Old Testament, their sins were merely covered. They were not permanently taken away. However, as they looked to God in faith, they were justified and they experienced penal forgiveness. And then in their faith walk, when they fell, they experienced parental forgiveness in confession. And that brings us to the key point that Paul wants to illustrate in relationship to David as seen in Romans 4.8. Notice what he says here. Short little verse. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. (laughs) This is a great verse. Great verse. Paul was a Hebrew scholar by background. And the rabbis commonly used an interpretive method in which they would link verses sharing a common thread word to illustrate a general principle. In other words, they saw these key words as indicating they were a cross-reference and they made a certain point uh, that made a certain point. And we have that here in Romans 4, 8 and uh, also verse 3. Note the linkage is this. Here's the linkage. Genesis 15, 6, the word hashab is translated as accounted in verse Three, accounted. In Psalm 32, 2, we say have the same word, hashab, it's translated impute here in Romans 4, 8. Note the emphasis is that Abraham had righteousness accounted, that is imputed to him on the basis of faith. The emphasis in relation to David is that he did not have sin imputed, put to his account. When he sinned, so, well, it should be there. He sinned. It should be on his account. No, it wasn't put to his account. But further note that with David, there is a double emphasis. Number one, David had righteousness imputed to him apart from works, verse 6. And number two, David did not have sin imputed to him when he sinned, verse 8. So here's what we have. Here's what we're looking at in the development of what Paul is saying. Abraham had imputed righteousness. David had imputed righteousness, but sin was not imputed to him. Both are true for the believer. We have imputed righteousness, and sin is not imputed to us. This is the point that Paul is wanting to make. For believers to have imputed righteousness means that God never imputes sin to our record. Once we are saved, the record is sealed forever. Forever we have imputed righteousness put to our account. And forever sin is never imputed to us, even when we are guilty of it. You say, well, that sounds scandalous. I want you to know grace is a scandalous matter. Gloriously so. Righteously so. And this is why. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. To what end? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All our sin was put to the account of Jesus on the cross, and in saving faith, the righteousness of Christ is now put to our account. Since Jesus made full payment for sin, it is forever taken care of. The payment was full and forever. Sin will never again be put on our account. So what's your account look like today, Pastor? There's nothing there. What about tomorrow? What about that? You say, well, but don't you stumble in any way? Yeah, yeah, but it's not, it's not put to my account. That's because of Jesus. He took it. All of our sin, past, present, and future is removed from our record. Even if we fall into sin, I'm talking about as believers, even if we fall into sin like David, you say, well, not like David? Yeah, yeah even like David. You say, well, that could never happen to me. Oh, yeah, Peter, I'll ne- I'll never, I'll ne- that'll never happen to me. No, 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 no. Yeah, let him that think if he stand to take heed lest he fall. We can fall. Even if we fall like David. Sin is not put to our account because it's already been paid for. This is grace. That's why I know I'm going to heaven. I'm going on grace. I'm going by what's been put to my account through Christ. Forget my record. Oh, that's ugly. Oh, my goodness. We don't even want to go there. We don't have to go there. Praise the Lord. 
1 John. Chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm writing so you don't sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate. That is a defense lawyer. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Satisfied all the just demands of of God against our sin. And and he's our, our representative. Even though Satan still has limited access to heaven, and even though he accuses us, as the Bible says, before God day and night, he has nothing on us because Jesus in our place as our substitute has forever satisfied the holy demands of God's righteous wrath against our sin. It's all been settled. It's all been settled. Here's what it is. On the basis of faith, righteousness has been imputed. Sin is not imputed. We're all over here. This is all canceled out. Forever and ever. It's gospel grace. You say, I can't believe it. You need to believe it. This is what we might call the two sides of imputation. On the one side, when we put our faith in Christ, we have righteousness imputed or put to our account. On the other side, when we sin as believers... That sin is not put to our account. You say, it's so glorious, I can't believe it. Believe it. It's what the Bible says. The cross provides the basis for the two sides of imputation. The cross forever answers to the penalty of our sin. And the cross is the ground for God putting righteousness to our account on the basis of faith. And here is the point. Both are based on faith apart from works. Abraham shows that righteousness is imputed on the basis of faith alone. David shows that even if we sin, that sin is not put to our account. How glorious is this amazing grace? As a believer, we have the righteousness of Christ put to our account forever and ever. As a believer, the penalty of sin will never be put to our account because God has once and forever declared us righteous. We are positionally free from sin forever. This is a glorious truth that will set you free indeed. John Stott, thus Paul writes in Romans 4, both of God not imputing sin to sinners, though it actually belongs to them, and of his imputing righteousness to us, although it does not belong to us. Paul makes the point that crediting righteousness to a person's account at the same time means not crediting sin. This is a package deal, a grace deal through faith. I want to share a true story as I wrap up here. Pardon must be accepted. True story. Back in 1830, a man by the name of George Wilson was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail and killing a government employee. And he was sentenced to be hanged. Well, President Andrew Jackson, for whatever reason, issued a pardon for Wilson. But he did a strange thing. He refused to accept it. No one seemed to know what to do. I mean, this is crazy stuff. No one seemed to know what to do because of this. So Wilson's case was sent to the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice Marshall, speaking on behalf of the court, said, pardon must be accepted by the one it is offered to. If refused, the pardon does not stand. The conclusion was that if George refused the pardon, he would have to be hanged. And he was. John 1, 12. As many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. The Bible says, to him who does not work, but believes. On him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Well, have you accepted God's offer of pardon through faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you believed on Him? This is the ultimate issue. It's a matter of what Jesus has done for you. It's a matter of faith. And the Bible is very clear that God justifies the one who puts their faith in Jesus. Not the one who's working. It's the person who comes to God As an ungodly sinner, acknowledge, I have nothing, no righteousness to offer. 
I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior and Him alone. Let's stand and have our closing song.